Let's hear the word of our God. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant nor maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony to your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let us pray. Father, our brother who has gone before us, Paul, has talked about uh, using the law lawfully, which means that we can use the law unlawfully or inappropriately. As sinners, it is so easy for us to misuse the law, to misapply the law, and to abuse the law that you have given. Help us to come to grips with the law and the gospel this morning. Work by word and spirit to help us to see how law and gospel come together in the Son, whom you love, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Something bad happened in our house. Not really bad, just kind of bad. And that bad thing that happened is that one of Amy's water bottles got destroyed by the dishwasher. We're not sure how it happened, but one day she opened it up and it was all melted and all this kind of stuff. So what happened is that she borrowed my water bottle. I was down a water bottle, which in Arizona is a big deal, right? Well, you see, I took this as an opportunity in a good way, 
because there had been this blue water bottle in the refrigerator for as long as I've been here. And so I thought to myself, you know, no one's claiming it. I'll claim it. So I went to the refrigerator this week, and I opened it up, and I grabbed that blue water bottle, and I had it next to mine. I go, oh, it's bigger than my water bottle. This is a great day. I'll have to fill it less. I'm excited. Until I opened the water bottle. I thought there was water. I went to pour it out, and I hear this big clunk. Fortunately, there was no stench. But someone had put milk in the water bottle. And now there was cheese (laughs) in the water bottle. A water bottle was never made to store milk long term. Okay? And when you do that, bad things happen. Okay? The law was intended to do certain things for us, and when we misuse the law, when we misunderstand the law, when we try to do something that it was never intended to do with it, bad things happen. One of the most important things, or not the most important things, but, but one of the things that is most dangerous to the Christian experience, not just to individual Christians, but also to churches and denominations, is to have a distortion of the law and its role in the Christian life. It can be deadly to a Christian and to a church. So as I thought about, well, what do I do with the Ten Commandments this morning? I thought, that's probably a really good thing to talk about. And so this morning will be probably a little more systematic theological, so to speak, than expositional. So hang with me. It's going to be a little different. But but our relationship with the law depends upon our relationship to Christ. You cannot reverse that equation. Our relationship with Christ does not depend upon our relationship with the law. It's the other way around. How we view the law and its role in our lives is utterly and completely dependent upon our relationship to Jesus Christ. And so that's why this is broken up, basically, in terms of how we are related to Christ and what the law therefore does. And so the first idea here is that apart from Christ, the law says, do and live or don't and die. The Westminster Confession of Faith brought us back to Adam, brought us back to the commands that he was given by God, brings us back there because their obedience would have brought life, but disobedience would bring death. In fact, what we see is exactly that what happened. Adam disobeyed. And death entered into the world. Sin and death entered into the world. And so as a result of this, we we recognize from the, the whole of Scripture that Adam did not act as a private person. But that Adam, because he was the head of a covenant, was also acting for all of mankind. This is one of the questions that my daughter and I are wrestling with in our study of the catechism right now. We're in this section on the covenants. So I'm hoping it all filters in. So yes, Adam did not work just for himself, but also for us. And so therefore, as a result of this, all who are born in Adam, which is everybody, are born under that covenant of works. And here's the thing. They live like it. Whether they're in rebellion to it or trying to live in submission to it, they live like they are under a covenant of works. And I'll explain that in a a few minutes. When we have the giving of the law here in Exodus 20, we find that the Mosaic Covenant 
is, interestingly enough, rooted in redemption, precisely because God declares himself to be the one who brought them out of Egypt, who brought them from the land of slavery. He redeemed them, and yet we see from the reaction of the people that though they had, many of them had experienced, well, all of them had experienced external redemption from Egypt, not all of them had experienced internal redemption from their sin. And so when they see what happens, when God speaks to them from the top of the mountain, what happens is they tremble with fear. See how they respond. They were shaking in their sandals. They're crying out, probably crying, and the idea, you know, like literally crying, screeching. Fear is what captured them. And as a result of this fear, Moses says they they did two things. One, they said to Moses, you talk to us, not him. Because they were afraid that God would kill them. And the second thing is that they stayed back at a distance. Okay? They hung back. They moved farther away. They were recoiling, so to speak, in, in, in horror because they knew something here of the reading of their law, of the law of their sinfulness and of their guilt. Paul in Romans 3 talks about this purpose of the law and that it exposes sin, that it reveals this guilt and condemnation. And in fact, part of what's going on is that God is shutting up the whole world in sin so that no man will be without excuse or with excuse. He's going to strip us of all of our excuses through the law. He's going to reveal, he reveals people for what they really are inside. And so what it means to, to live under this covenant of works is really, I, I kind of understand it in, in two ways. One is fear and the other is pride. And both of these are working in every human heart. Fear often drives the obedience of people outside of Christ. Fear, the fear of getting caught. Sometimes people look good, but the only reason they do good is because they're afraid of the alternative. That if they do the wrong thing that they really want to do in their heart, is they will get caught and they don't want to deal with the consequences. Fear drives many people's obedience. Not only that fear of getting caught, but also the fear that there is no mercy with God. They have a, they, they have a misunderstanding of who God is. They don't really understand what, what Moses is going to learn later, is that God is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercies. And part of that is because the evil one has lied to them about who God is. So that's how, how fear tends to function in our lives or in people's lives outside of Christ. But the other aspect is pride. A pride which despises dependence upon the work of Christ. And this pride is, of course, a foolish illusion. George isn't here this morning. Why isn't George here? He's in a rehabilitation center, getting better, getting stronger. Right? Last two weeks, he's been in a hospital bed. Imagine the foolishness if he had said, don't bother, 
I'll take care of it myself. Here is a man who is brought low by illness. He is weak and tired. How foolish it would be for him to think that he can get up and do everything for himself. And yet that is what pride tries to do, is to say, yeah, I know I'm a... I might be a sinner, but still, I'm going to try and gut this out and do this my own way. I'm going to try and, and prove my worth to God. And that's really how pride functions within the human heart. Here's the rub. According to Paul in Galatians 3, all depending on the law, all who depend upon the law, are under the curse. Now, Paul is writing this not because the Galatians were not in the church, but he's writing this to people who are in the church because that aspect of using the law as a covenant of works to gain justification with God is not something that's just for those people out there. It is a danger for people in here and every other church. Because what they were doing through the influence of the Judaizers was saying, yes, Christ, faith in Christ is important, but you also need to add this obedience to the law in order to truly be justified. Paul says that no, it's Christ of the law. Either you, you rely upon Christ to, bring, to, to be accepted by God, or you rely upon the law to be accepted by God. There's no halfway house here. There's no middle ground. And so what we find is that legalism is a danger. Legalism is depending upon the law to maintain, sorry, to gain or maintain your relationship with God. That's an important thing right there, that and, maintain. Because many churches will teach that the way we maintain our relationship with God is through obedience. And that is not how we maintain our relationship with God. That is what the covenant of works, which is written upon our hearts because of our being born in Adam, wants us to think, is that somehow, well, we come to faith, but now we've got to work. Paul talked about that in Galatians. Why did you start by the Spirit and now you're trying to finish it by the flesh? They had begun to move to works of the law to maintain their status with God. When I was in England, I went to see Hadrian's Wall. Anyone been to see Hadrian's Wall? All right, we got one person who's been to see Hadrian's Wall. It's not very impressive anymore. <laughs> it really couldn't keep anybody out. But if you're driving your car, the road tends to go along Hadrian's Wall. And so if you, tend to, if you went a little too far, you would crash into Hadrian's Wall. Okay. Legalism is like Hadrian's Wall. It's right there by the road, and if, you don't, if you're not careful, you can crash and destroy your faith by legalism. You can hit that. And it's not just by re- relying upon the law to justify, but also to sanctify in an inappropriate way. Let me ask these questions. To kind of, maybe this will help you understand what, it, what I'm talking about. Why should God answer your prayer? Why should God bless you? Why does God love you and not someone else? 
if your answer has anything to do with what you have done, well, God should answer my prayer because, you know, I, I had my quiet time more days than not this week. You're relying upon works to maintain your relationship with God. If you're, if you're saying, why should God bless me? Well, you know, I tithe this month. Or, I didn't yell at my kids this week. Relying upon your obedience to maintain your relationship with God. Or if you think of the other, God will never answer my prayers because I was disobedient this week. You're relying upon your obedience to maintain your relationship with God. You have lapsed into legalism. And you're in danger of hitting that wall. And so, unfortunately, it's in our spiritual DNA to pursue a work righteousness. It's part of who we are, and so we need to be very careful of this danger. Not just before we come to Christ, but even as we seek to live as Christians. So we move to kind of the second part. The second reality is that Christ did and died so that you could live. Here's the, that's the good news. <laughs> the problem was not the law. The law is holy, it is good, it is righteous, it is just. The problem is our sinful nature which was powerless to obey. Now here's the thing. The law has no power to give life. The law only has the power to say whether or not you should live. It brings judgment. But it does not give a power to obey. So often in our day and age, what we do is if people are powerless to obey a law, we change the law, right? Or, or we just refuse to enforce the law. There's, there's a few of those around the country um, that I, I won't get into this morning because they're really weird. Um, but, you know, some people have the weird law Wednesday on Facebook. There's lots of strange laws out there that are not, un, not enforced because they're just too weird. Um, but in our case, you know, the law is powerless to fix our problem. The law was never intended to fix our problem. The law was only intended to diagnose our problem, to reveal it and make it known. There needed to be a redeemer to rescue us from our problem. And in fact, that is indeed what Christ is. Because he was born of a virgin, he did not have a sinful nature. He was not in Adam Therefore, he was not under the law in that particular sense. of the, the, He did not inherit a sinful nature. But Jesus lived under the law. Jesus obeyed the law. Fear and pride did not derail him. Meaning that his obedience was in fact a righteous obedience. It was not because he was afraid he was going to get crushed. It was not because he was afraid that he would get caught. It was done out of love. He obeyed the whole law out of love for his Father and for his people. Not only did he obey out of love for them, but he also obeyed the law for them. This is what's going to happen when someone believes in Christ. What happens is that his obedience is credited to them and is the basis of their justification or being declared right with God. I remember 
after I'd become a Christian, um, I wrote a letter to my first girlfriend who I hadn't seen in years. And um, I, she had been a teacher. She, turned, you know, she ended up becoming a teacher. And so I, I had actually met her family again at the church I was worshiping in. It just kind of blew my mind. I never knew that they were church-going people. And I uh, wasn't really sure about their relationship with Christ. But I wrote her this letter. And, and the illustration that I used to try and explain the gospel to her was imagine a test and you have failed the test. No one has passed the test, actually. The the entire class failed miserably this exam. Ever been there? Some of us have, okay? But imagine that the teacher took the test, gets an A, and says, if you ask me to, I will give you my grade in place of your grade. That's essentially the gospel. We failed the test of the law, but Christ took the test, passed the test, and says, if you want to trust me, I can save you because I will give my perfect obedience to you who have no obedience. That's justification. That's the gospel. Not only that, but Jesus suffered the penalty of the law out of love for his people too. He paid the debt that we owe. Galatians uh, chapter 2, we find, um, well, I don't know why I wrote Galatians 2. We'll get back to that eventually. Um, Oh, wait a minute, wrong spot. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What's Paul saying? If you could earn your righteousness, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. It rubs against our pride. (laughs) That we're that messed up that the Son of God had to die that we might be justified, brought into right relationship with God. We need someone to pay that debt. And so there's, there's two ways in which we look at this through the Westminster Confession of Faith. First, it talks about justification, that our acceptance by God has been secured by Jesus. It is not secured by us. We are righteous because of His death upon the cross, which is for the pardon of our sin, and His obedience, which is then given to us, so we are declared righteous. Not innocent, righteous. Secured by Jesus, not by us. And no sins that we can commit can take that away. There is no sin that can undermine our justification. We are secure in that. Not only that, but there's no obedience you can do that can make you like super justified. You know? Like extra that maybe you can lend to somebody else. I don't know. You can't add to it so that you're somehow more loved by God than someone else in this congregation because you're more obedient. No, that's not what happens. The second way of looking at this is the doctrine of adoption, okay? where a new status is given. And it's, it's not just the status of righteous, but it's the status son. 
brought into the family, given a legal identity, a new name, and not only that, given an inheritance that is secured, again, by Jesus and not by you. Such that, same thing. No matter how disobedient you are, you don't stop being his son. No, no matter how obedient you might be, you don't become a favored son over the rest of the sons. My kids, okay? Regardless of how they live, are my kids. They will always be my children. I am not going to disown them because they are disobedient and live in a way in which does not please me. They are secure in the relationship that they have with me. Yes, you're secure. You. I'm talking to you. I'm always going to be your dad. Nothing ever changes that. Her obedience won't make me love her more. Just like her disobedience won't make me love her less. That's a picture of the gospel. What happens is that our fear and our pride are only destroyed by love. The love of God displayed in Christ Jesus. Okay? Because we see through that love by which he sent his son to save us, destroys our fear. Because we need, no, we need not fear punishment anymore. We not, need not fear condemnation because Christ has taken it. And we need not be arrogant and prideful anymore precisely because we look at the love that was displayed and we go, I needed that. It should humble us. And this only happens as we meditate upon Christ's work for us. Why well, I guess I keep going, bringing you guys back to that passage in in First John. For this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That is what melts, destroys, reduces our fear and our pride, because we are accepted with God. But it's not because of who we are and how great we are. It's despite how messed up we are. And so life is possible only because Jesus obeyed the law and suffered the penalty. So that which brings us to the position for those who are in Christ, who are united to Christ, you are alive so that you can do. With our status secured by Jesus, we have a very different relationship to the law than we did apart from him. No longer does it condemn us Christ has hushed its loud thunder. But there's, remember I talked about the wall? Hadrian's wall? On the other side of the road, at least where I was, there were all these farms. And because they guess they didn't like the tourists who came to see the wall, they all had these big trees. <laughs> and it's a windy road. So if, if you go too far this way, you hit the wall. If you go too far this way, you wrap your car around a tree. 
there's another danger on the other side. The danger of antinomianism. That is the idea that the law has no place in our lives anymore because of Christ. It is just as dangerous as legalism. It's as if there are two pits. Maybe I should say this uh, you know, in terms of Arizona. I haven't been all the way up 77 yet, but from what I've heard... You know, you start to get in that section where you have all the cutbacks and the switchbacks. And on this, on one side you have a cliff, on the other, on the other side you have a cliff in the other direction. So there's the, there's the big wall that you could slam into, and then there's the wall you've got to go over. The Christian life is living between those two things. Both are deadly dangers that are to be avoided. <clears throat> Excuse me. What the antinomian does, or the person who says that the law has no place in the life of a Christian, and I've interacted with some of these people, is that they apply passages that deal with our justification to sanctification. And say that, oh, because there's, the law has no place in our justification, there's, it has no place in our sanctification. And that is taking something out of context. What is interesting to me is uh, that these people... We'll talk about the royal law sometimes from James chapter 2. Or the, the law that brings freedom from James chapter 1. But what they don't rec- want to honestly own up to is the fact that when James talks about that royal law in, in uh, James 2, he then describes it by quoting from the Ten Commandments. If you want to go to James 2 later on, go read it in context and see that's exactly what he does. They're okay with saying, oh yes, we have the law of love. Love God and love one another. But what they don't realize is that in Romans chapter 13, Paul says, what is love to our neighbor? And what does he quote? The Ten Commandments. It does, love does not steal from its neighbor. Love does not take its neighbor's wife. Love does not destroy its neighbor, your neighbor's reputation. What is love to God? It does not put other gods in its place. It rests when it's supposed to and worships as it ought. Back to Exodus. After Moses came down from the mountain saw that the people had already created a graven image in the form of a golden calf. What does he do? He destroys it, destroys the tablets, goes and gets more. God writes on tablets with his own finger. That's important for us. The law was written in stone by God. It points to its permanence. But again, putting this back within the context of the redemption from Egypt, it is meant for those who have been redeemed. Moses does something interesting here in Exodus 20. When they're acting afraid, he says what? Don't be afraid. But then he says something else. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you. One is the verb form and the other is the noun form of the very same word used in different ways. He's saying... Don't be shaken in your boots like God's going to crush you and destroy you. The awe and respect of God, however, 
he says, will keep you from sinning. Where does the awe and respect of God come from? It, it essentially comes from the cross. I mean, I remember the first, well, it's the only time I met John Piper. Um, I was working a conference for Ligonier, and I don't know why I was intimidated, because I'd met so many of these other bigwigs, you know? I've met Cal Thomas and R.C. Sproul and you know, numerous people. But there comes John Piper. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I became a babbling idiot. I, don't, I think I didn't actually say anything because I was afraid that I w- I'd say something so incredibly stupid. I was in awe of him for some reason. Okay? That's the idea of that fear of God, that awe, that respect. It talks about the diff- that, like, points to the difference in the kinds of fear. In the covenant of works, we have this slavish fear, the fear of slaves, that if we don't do it right, we're going to get beat. But what God is calling us to do through redemption is to have, in the fear of God is in the New Testament, by the way, is to have the fear of a son who longs to please the father who loves him. That is very different. Okay? That is the kind of fear that we, we ought to be having. And it's, it's illustrated, I think, really well in one of my professors uh, in seminary raised champion show dogs. And he had one called Elvis, who was his favorite dog. Um, he, brought, he had two dogs that were at that particular point in time. And there was one who did everything right, but his heart wasn't in it. He had the heart of a slave. But then there was Elvis, who was the champion. And the reason why Elvis was the champion was because he did it with such joy. He didn't just obey, but he enjoyed, I mean, he obeyed joyfully. You could see it on his face, the way he ran and he smiled. Okay, as dogs smile. Okay, my dog sort of smiles. Not going to be a show dog. But you see, that's the reason he's the champion. And that is the obedience the Father looks for, one that, is, that arises out of joy and out of love because our, our status is already secure. We're not trying to earn it, we're not trying to avoid a beating. We are loved. Ephesians 5, imitate God, therefore, as beloved children. That's the point. You are beloved. Now imitate. You're secure in that love, as as Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 1. So now live in it. You've been given this, now live in it. So that you can do. Not only that, but we find that we also obey in the power of the Spirit who dwells in us, which is where Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 2, but we also see it in Philippians uh, uh, chapter 2 as well, when he talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and act according to his good purpose. The power for obedience comes from the Holy Spirit, not from you. It's like the third rail of a subway. You can have a nice-looking subway train, but it ain't going anywhere if it's not connected to the third rail. Because it is the third rail that, has, that transfers the power to the engine, which makes it move. 
along the rails. And so the spirit is the power that moves the subway, and the law is essentially the rails it rides towards righteousness. The power is not in the law. The law just provides direction. So the subway is just not kind of going off who knows where, bringing it to your destination. But the power comes from the Holy Spirit, which is a gift of grace by Jesus Christ because of His work. Um, And so what we find is that the the qualification for grace is actually faith, not our obedience. Okay, The Pharisees had messed that up. And basically said the qualification for grace is obedience. The hyper-Calvinists messed that up. They started to say that you must have some measure of obedience before we will give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must have a conviction of sin, some sort of, some sort of sign that you are elect before we give you the gospel of Jesus Christ. No. It is grace that produces the obedience. We have to keep that in mind, brothers and sisters. For I want you to be obedient. But I want it to be an obedience that is produced by faith and that is produced by the gospel and therefore is pleasing to God and is beautiful to others. Because if, it, if we lapse into legalism, we become unhealthy and destructive to ourselves and others. And so misunderstanding your relationship to the law distorts your understanding of Christianity and can even be deadly. Our relationship with the law depends upon our relationship with Christ. No Christ means that our sin must bring condemnation, but faith in Christ, being united to Him by faith, Bring security that leads us into obedience. And so I ask, I tell you, don't drive into a ditch or hit a wall, go over a cliff, whichever illustration you like, but instead live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That is how we grow in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to live out the freedom of sons. The freedom which loves you and your people. I ask that you would free us from a legalistic spirit which comes so naturally to us as sons of Adam. Help us to repent of that spirit when we recognize it or when our brothers and sisters are pointed out to us. Free us as well from a lawless spirit which seeks grace only to throw off all restraint towards sin. And so I ask that you'd help us to repent of this spirit as well. Enable us to live in love, guided by your law, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Empower us to be a spiritually healthy church to the praise of your glorious grace, we ask in the name of the one who sits upon the throne of grace. Jesus, our great high priest, who is also the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the line of the tribe of Judah, 
the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world, by whom people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language have been bought and brought near to God. In this name we pray. Amen.